What a blessing God's word is. And to that word we want to turn now. Let me have you take your Bibles and open them up this morning to Mark's gospel. After a break of a couple of weeks, we return now to this journey through the gospel according to Mark. And we'll be picking up right where we left off in chapter 6. Beginning in verse 14, we'll read verses 14 through 29 this morning. And that will be our text as well. Uh, Follow along with me as I read God's word. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that... The flower fades away, the grass withers and and dies, but your word remains forever, and we thank you for it this morning. We pray that you would bless us as we hear your word expounded this morning. We ask that you would be, uh, that your strength would be given uh, to the weakness of the one who preaches. Uh, We pray that you would help us to hear with ears to hear, Lord, that we would seek to understand and that we would be enabled to understand what your word has for us this morning as we look at these things. Bless us through it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Remember to keep, as always, your Bibles out and follow along as we work through this passage this morning. Uh, It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who once wrote these words, when Christ calls a man, 
he bids him come and die. And indeed, the Bible devotes a great deal of space to the truth that following Jesus, that being a disciple of Christ, is costly. A costly decision. Jesus himself said that since the world hated him, that we should not be surprised when the world hates us and expresses that hatred towards us in any number of ways. But Jesus also said that indeed it is a source of blessing when we come up against such persecution, such hatred, such rejection, when the world hates us for Christ, for his sake. Remember Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And because all of that is true, we are going to be looking in our passage today uh, at the story of a blessed man, himself a prophet, the last prophet, really, of the Old Covenant, And Jesus said he was more than a prophet, for he was the one who was promised and foretold and called to to come and specifically to come as a messenger to prepare the way and to announce the coming of the, the imminent arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This man, this prophet, this herald, this forerunner, this Christian is known to us as John the Baptist. Now Mark, the writer of the gospel that we're studying, remember, whose primary source for his uh, material was the apostle Peter, he treats John here in a very interesting way. Of course, John the Baptist is central to the beginning of Mark's gospel. We saw that uh, back when we were going through that portion of it. In fact, in, in just the fourth verse of the gospel... Mark wrote that John, John the Baptist, appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Six verses there. And those six verses, as Mark records the work of John, those are the extent of what Mark has to say about John the Baptist in his ministry. By contrast, what we have before us today are 16 verses that are given to the record of the death of John the Baptist. In fact, it seems 
to be here that, that just as John the Baptist came to be a forerunner to the ministry of Jesus, we also see here in John's death a sort of forerunner in regard to the events of Jesus' death, a foreshadowing of what is going to happen to Jesus. Because we'll, we'll see, and we'll make note of this a little later, several parallels between this episode and the later episode of the death of Jesus himself. And as I said, we also see in John's death a graphic demonstration for us of the cost of following Christ and of being identified with Christ and especially of being a a public, steadfast, faithful witness to Christ in the face of those who are against Christ. This story that we're looking at this morning comes sandwiched, if you will, in between the beginning and the end of Mark's record of Jesus, remember, sending out the twelve, sending them out to proclaim the gospel, sending them out to call people to repentance and faith, and sending them to do the signs that accompanied that message, to validate that message. And with his own instruction that he gave to them, he prepared them for the possibility of rejection. Remember he said that if a city rejects you, that you're to shake the dust off of your shoes when you lead, when you leave. And just as also right before that whole uh, record, Jesus himself, remember, went back to his hometown and he was rejected by those that, that knew him best. So Jesus is rejected. He says that those he sends out will likely be rejected. And now in the middle of that, Mark interrupts that story and shows us just how harsh that rejection might be and just how much might be required of them if they are to faithfully follow and serve Christ. Which, of course, gives us a very important point of application as we begin to look at this. That while receiving forgiveness for our sins through Christ is absolutely free, and that's the message of the gospel, that following Christ then as his disciple is not, but it's costly. And as Jesus has been preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of which he is the king, Mark tells us that the word of his teaching and his miracles are spreading as well through the area. And Mark says in verse 14 that King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Now, Herod, there in verse 14, is is the man known as Herod Antipas. A-N-T-I-P-A-S, if you're taking notes. Uh, He was one of several sons of a man whom we know as Herod the Great. Uh, We'll talk a little more about Herod and Herod's in, in just a bit here. But this man, though Mark refers to him as King Herod, and while he was probably referred to colloquially uh, by that term at that time, 
He was a king only in that most broad, general, colloquial sense. He was not an actual king. Which may have been why Mark refers to him as a king, because he is a, a, not a king who is called a king, and he is speaking now about the one who is the king overall, Jesus. But this man that Mark, Mark refers to here as King Herod uh, had no Jewish blood. He was not a real king. He had been given his, his rulership over the area that he had by the Romans. He as all of the Herods were, and Herod is kind of like a family name that many but not all in that family adopted, they were all faithful servants to the Romans, to the Roman Empire. They were put in place by the Roman emperor. Technically, this Herod that we're speaking of here, Herod Antipas, was, his title was a tetrarch, which means the ruler of a fourth. When Herod the Great died, the area over which he ruled was divided into four, and his sons were given sections of that to rule over. Herod's called a tetrarch back in Luke 3.1. And throughout Herod Antipas, this Herod, his area of rule, which included Galilee, the word about Jesus is spreading. Remember, Jesus' ministry was largely at this point in Galilee. It's spreading about Jesus as a great teacher and a great doer of miracles. And that word is spreading. As well as questions about Jesus. Who is Jesus? They've asked that. Several have said, who is this that can do these things? And those questions were were becoming more important for people to answer. And, And Mark here gives us some of the opinions, the main opinions of the day. In verse 14, it says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, so here's one of the opinions, was that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now that in and of itself is an interesting phrase because John the Baptist is not known to have ever performed any miracles. In fact, John 10.41 says that John did no sign. And remember, the miracles in the New Testament are always signs. They're always pointing to something. They're never just done for their own sake. And John is very um, consistent in his use of referring to miracles as signs. And that's what he says here. John didn't do any of those. He didn't do any miracles. But it was likely that, that such a pop, with such a popular following with such a prophetic aura about him uh, that it's likely that miracles at some point were attributed to him, whether he had actually done any or not. So some said Jesus is John the Baptist, uh, being, having been raised from the dead, and that's why these, these miracles are being done by him. Others, the text says, said he's Elijah, and that... If you know your Bible, you probably are, you easily understand where that comes from. It certainly comes from the, as a result of the closing prophecy in the Old Testament. In Malachi 4 5, right there at the very end of the Old Testament, a, a prophecy where God states, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And the people were expecting Elijah, expecting him to, to come back, to proclaim the arrival of the messenger of the covenant. That also comes from Malachi, from Malachi 3.1. That was going to be his work. And some thought that Jesus now was Elijah had, who had come back. Of course, remember also that, that Jesus made clear that even though John the Baptist didn't quite recognize this, that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecy about Elijah as he came and prepared the way for Jesus who was the messenger of the covenant. So some thought that he was Elijah, uh, come back. And others thought, as the text says here, well, maybe this Jesus is like one of the other prophets who has come back. They all thought of him, in a sense, as a prophet. And these, by the way, are, are the same opinions that Jesus is going to hear later in Mark's gospel from the disciples when he asks them, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? They give the same answers here. And isn't it interesting that these people who are, are willing to believe that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead or Elijah back from the dead. Um, but when Jesus himself rises from the dead, they don't believe. But as the reports of Jesus make their way to Herod, in his mind, he has no doubt who Jesus is. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He's convinced. He is convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. Now, what he didn't know, didn't realize what others who said it was John the Baptist didn't know or didn't realize, but we know because we've read the scriptures, is that Jesus and John were contemporaries. They were alive at the same time. So Jesus couldn't have been John back from the dead. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. John pointed people to Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God, follow him. So this idea of Herod's that, that Jesus is John doesn't even make sense. So what is it then that makes Herod so sure that this is John the Baptist, that Jesus is John the Baptist? Well, it is a suggestible mind which he had combined with one of the most dreadful things that a person can be burdened with, burdened with, and that is a guilty conscience. Herod had a guilty conscience concerning John. Because Jesus, he says, uh, Herod said, is not just John the Baptist, look at verse 14, but he says that it is John whom I beheaded who has come back. Because Herod had been the direct cause of John's beheading. Because Herod had given the order that ended John's life. And because Herod knew that he had killed an innocent man. Because of that, Herod just knew that this had to be John the Baptist. He just knew that this Jesus preaching a, a similar message to what John the Baptist had preached, who preached bold and authoritatively like John had done. Herod knew 
in his uninformed, twisted, evil, adulterous, darkened, paranoid heart that this was John the Baptist, back from the dead to haunt him. Resurrection in these days was seen always as a harbinger of judgment. And so the fact that he believed that Jesus was John the Baptist, raised from the dead, resurrected, was connected right to the next thing, was that he is going to come, or he has come, to pronounce judgment on me. He's coming after me. And now with resurrection power. Now why would he think that? Well, that's what the rest of this passage is about. As Mark here in greater detail than Matthew or Luke uh, records for us. Let's see why Herod had a guilty conscience regarding Jesus. It begins with the fact that Herod had thrown John the Baptist into prison. It says in verse 17, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. And why did he do that? Well, Luke, over in Luke's gospel, he gives us part of the reason. He said that it was because John had reproved him, Herod, had rebuked Herod himself for the situation regarding Herodias, his wife, who also had been Herod's brother's wife. And Luke says, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. John the Baptist rebuked him for those things. And so he was thrown into prison. But Mark tells us something further. Mark tells us that it was for the sake of Herodias. It was not just because John called out Herod regarding Herodias, but Mark tells us that John was put in prison because of Herodias. Because she pressured him to do this. He did it to appease her. As we'll see, that's just the beginning here. This Herodias is described here as his brother, that is Herod's brother, Philip's wife. And the transgression that brought John the Baptist's rebuke was because, he says, he had married her, because Herod had married Herodias. Which verse 18 then further explains by telling us that John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This marriage is wrong. This marriage is contrary to God's law, contrary to the moral law. Now, to explain this, what's going on here takes takes a moment of of explanation here. And And let me begin by just saying that the Herod family was a pretty messed up family. One commentator even says that the the Herodian family tree was more twisted than the trunk of an olive tree. And if you've ever seen one of the old olive trees, you you know that that's pretty twisted. Um, The name Herod, as I mentioned, is a family name that was taken by many, but not all, uh, within what is called the Herodian dynasty, a family whose roots went back to the people known as the Idumeans and are traced back to a man named Antipas who died in 78 B.C. And events that took place during the 
what we call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Things happened uh, during that time. That's where the, the Herods uh, rose to power. But things really get going with his grandson, with Antipas's grandson, a man that we've mentioned named Herod the Great. You have to keep, try to keep all these Herods straight. Herod the Great. Now, I mentioned earlier that Herod, the Herods were loyal to Rome. They were also viewed, and they're also viewed in history, pretty negatively. And it's not because of their specific skills. There were, they were not without some very able rulers, very resourceful men that did some good things within the world. But, but those things were always overshadowed by this family's tendency toward incessant infighting and suspicion and court intrigue and sh- a shocking amount of just immorality. Herod the Great, he was the man who ruled at the time of the birth of Jesus. And he was given rule over that area of Judea after being noticed favorably in the Roman Empire by such men as Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and Cassius and Octavius. Herod the Great, given this rule over this, the whole area of Judea, he was known for two things. One is that he's known for instituting a great building project, primarily the building, the, the expansion of the temple there in Jerusalem that had been started by the Jews after the, the exiles had come back. But it was still small. It was a shadow of its former glory. But Herod came in and wanting to, to appease the Jews in some ways, uh, set up this building program, a huge building program, that went on, remember, in the New Testament, in the days of Jesus, Jesus, uh, the apostle, said that this has already been going on for 46 years, this building project. And it wouldn't be finished until about the year 65 A.D. Of course, if your history dates are clicking through your mind, you'll know that it only then stood for about five more years before the Romans came and raised it to the ground. But that's one of the things. Herod was known for, for being a prolific builder, that great building project. Uh, but he's also known, probably more so, for what's known as the slaughter of the innocents. Remember when Jesus was born, and after Jesus was born, and the wise men came and said they were looking for one who was born king of the Jews. And Herod, this Herod, Herod the Great, ended up issuing a proclamation that all male children under the age of two should be slaughtered in order to try to kill Jesus. That's what Herod's known for. Those are the kind of things that overshadow the good things like his building programs. But Herod the Great was prolific in other ways as well. Herod the Great had ten wives. His first wife, and there won't be a test on this, I don't think, His first wife was named Mariamne I, and she bore him a son named Aristobulus. I like saying that name, Aristobulus. Uh, And he had a son called King Herod Agrippa I, and he is the one in the New Testament that executed James and um, imprisoned Peter. So he is in the New Testament as well. His son, Agrippa II, will feature prominently in the book of Acts. 
But this Aristobulus also had a daughter, and her name is Herodias, this Herodias. Another of Herod the Great's wives, um, confusingly named Mariamne II, she bore a child called Herod Philip. And he is the Philip that's mentioned down in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So he's part of the story here as well. Another wife of Herod the Great bore another child named Philip. Sorry about that. Uh, This one is known as Philip the Tetrarch. And Herod the Great's second wife, named Malthas, bore the Herod in our passage this morning, known as Herod Antipas. Now, if you've got all of that, Herod... Time's up? Okay. (laughs) Now, Herod Philip, the half-brother of Herod Antipas, married his half-niece, the daughter of Aristobulus, Herodias. And Herod Antipas actually married someone outside of the family. He married the king of Arabia, the king of a man named Eratus. But then on a trip through, or a trip to his half-brother Philip's house, Herod Antipas met and became infatuated with this Herodias, who was also his half-niece, and they decided that they would get married. But in order to do that, Herodias had to divorce Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas had to send away his wife, what, which he did. He sent her back to her father, which, I won't go into that, but which ended up being the downfall of Herod Antipas. So this marriage then of Herod Antipas to his half-niece, who was married to his half-brother, Philip, was besides being terribly confusing, was unlawful according to the law of Moses. It was an adulterous marriage, and it was a marriage with a close relative, which according to Leviticus 18.6 and Leviticus uh, 20.21 is forbidden. And by the way, just to complete this rather sordid picture, we're going to read in a little bit about Herodias' daughter, She was born from Herodias with her first husband, Philip. Later, she will end up, uh, this daughter will end up marrying her half-uncle, Philip the Tetrarch, the other Philip. And you thought your family had problems. But the point here with all of this is how John the Baptist responded. That he was not shy about rebuking Herod Antipas for this situation. In fact, the text says he had been saying that it was not proper for him to have his brother's wife. He kept saying it. And as a result, look at verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man, a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. After imprisoning John, Herod heard from John, heard from him on a regular basis, 
And he learned from those encounters that John was a righteous and a holy man, a godly man. And Mark says that Herod feared John. He feared John. Herod was a superstitious man. He likely feared John because of that. But also John preached of judgment. He preached of the wrath to come, remember. Matthew adds that Herod also feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So he heard John, he listened to John, he was intrigued by John, he feared John in a way. And even in the trial of of being imprisoned for his faith, though, John retained his integrity. And even though Herodias wanted him dead, God providentially restrained her murderous intent, moving Herod's heart to keep him safe because of the way that Herod responded to him. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So this mixture of fear and respect from Herod to John the Baptist, he listened, he was glad to hear him. He didn't quite know what to make of him. And of course, most sadly, he refused to listen to John. He refused to repent of his evil deeds and his adulterous marriage. How sad it is to see an example here of how much someone can hear and listen and even appreciate to a degree the preaching of God's word and yet it can have no effect on them. We talked about that probably a couple months ago, a few months ago when Jesus gave his parable of the the sower and the seeds. And I pray that it is true of no one who sits in these pews week in and week out that you hear, that you maybe agree, that you maybe appreciate God's word and yet do not respond to it. Because know that listening and hearing and appreciating God's word, God's word read, God's word preached, that in and of itself will not save you. That will not render you right with God. One must, as John said, as Jesus said, one must repent and believe in Christ. Not just hear the words. Jesus chided the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But he said, that's not it. Or it is it only in the fact, only in the the case, only in the truth that they testify of me because Jesus is the one who saves you must believe in Christ not you simply must believe his word you can't believe his word without believing in Christ and really believe the word but Herod heard John he heard him he appreciated him but he did nothing about it Herod continued as he was and Herodias continued to look for a way to be rid of John Remember, she was as guilty in this situation as Herod was. John's words were meant for her as much as for for him. And for that, she hated him and seethed in that hatred and looked for any possibility to, verse 19 says, to put him to death. 
You read the story of, of Herod and Herodias and the way they interact and the way she is conniving behind the scenes and you can't, think, can't help but think of Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament. Very similar situation. But Mark goes on and tells us that eventually, verse 21 says, an opportunity came. An opportunity came for Herodias. Herod, we're told, and there's the opportunity, Herod threw himself a birthday party, a great banquet. And it's a banquet for the elite of of his tetrarchy. The guest list reads here like an A-list of society. In verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, the cultural, societal, um, military elite of the day, a gathering here of the, the old boys club, in honor, Herod said, of me, in honor of me. It's my birthday. Then they gather together. And there's this, this party is going on. And then among the entertainment for this party, verse 22 says, tells us, came Herodias' daughter, verse 22. Now, the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, but it is very clear as you read it that this is all arranged, plotted, if you will, by Herodias. These are not events that just take place with the complicity of her own daughter. Now, I should mention, by the way, that there are some who say that this is broader than Herodias' plotting, that really this is Herod being a part of this and plotting. That it's not just Herodias alone, but that Herod, is in seeking to appease his wife, is part of this. We don't know. But her daughter... Herodias' daughter and Josephus, the Jewish historian, reveals to us that her name was Salome. She came in and danced, the text says. And I think I'll just say that the dancing at this type of event would not be tap or ballet, but rather the type of dancing that would have the effect of, of, quote, pleasing a group of drunk, partying, immoral men. And with the wine flowing and the girl dancing and the desire to impress his guests, he, Herod, plays right into the hand of his evil wife. And he says to the girl in verse 22, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Then he repeats it, verse 23, He vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now that last bit is clearly hyperbole. It was just talk. It was just a thing to say. And it's likely that everybody knew it. Herod worked for Rome. And Rome would not have let Herod give an acre of his tetrarchy over to this girl. But we read then the rest of the story in verses 24 through 28. It goes rather quickly. And she went out, the girl, Salome, went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king 
and asks, saying, I want you to give me at once, note the, the, the hurry here, give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Don't want time for this to be thought through or reconsidered. Do it now. And the king was exceedingly sorry, the text says, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. So she goes out, goes out to mom and says, what should I ask for? To which Herodias gave the prepared answer. And the king then shows his true colors, his spineless spine, um, by, by, as the text says, He was very sorry, but he wasn't that sorry. He didn't want to go back on his word. He didn't want to uh, lose face in front of his guests, his powerful, elite guests. It's interesting to see here that peer pressure is not reserved for middle school or high school kids. But it's just as powerful to a man without integrity. So verse 26 and verse 27, rather, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. The order is given, the execution is carried out, and this great man of God is executed so that Herod can save face. And then we're told in verse 29 that when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. We see a contrast here through this in the characters, particularly John the Baptist and Herod. John the Baptist is fearless. He is dedicated. He is righteous and holy as even Herod could see. He has moral courage He is unwavering in his ministry to to the Christ that he came to announce. The forerunner, the herald of the Messiah. But the message that he preached, remember, was a message of repentance and belief. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, he preached. And he was willing to put his life in jeopardy in the service of God, his king. And he enjoyed a clean conscience for it. On the other hand, Herod Antipas, superstitious, fearful, wavering, undecisive, besought with a guilty conscience for good reason. Adulterous, weak of conviction, willing to murder a godly man to save face with his friends. Such a contrast. And so in this story what we really have is a record of, we we hear of the passion of Christ in the events surrounding his death. What we have here is really the passion and death of John the Baptist, a forerunner of the Messiah in his life and a forerunner of the Messiah in his death. As the later record of the passion of the death of Christ will reveal these parallels. In both, there is an arrest In both, there is a plot to kill. In both, there is fear by those who are doing the plotting. In both, an innocent man is executed under the pressure of others. In both, there is the burial by followers. 
And in both cases, interestingly, the civil ruler, Herod here, Pilate in the death of Christ, hesitates to execute the person but then does so under the pressure and through the scheming of others, whether it's Herodias here or the chief priests in Jesus' situation. Now, I can say, I think, with a good deal of confidence that none of us here will probably be asked to lay down our lives for Christ. But on the other hand, all of us will be asked and are asked, well, to lay down our lives for Christ. Probably none of us will have to die for Christ, but all of us who call ourselves Christians are called to live for Christ. To stand firm in the face of opposition. To stand firm in the face of persecution. Whether it's before a king or whether it's before young people, that person in school who mocks you for holding to the teaching of Scripture. Or that person who comes to your door and wants to share with you a different Christ and a different gospel than the Bible teaches. Or a Christian young person, again, a Christian older person. The boyfriend or the girlfriend who says, come on, sex is just what people do today. Or how you identify is up to you and no one else. Or the high school coach that says, if you want to be on the team, or if you want your son or your daughter to be on the team, you have to be at the games that we play on Sunday. Or the coworker who says, you really don't believe that stuff, do you? Or a thousand other examples. We're called to stand firm in the face of that opposition. Discipleship is hard. Following Christ is hard. Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, that you have to take up your cross. And the cross was an implement of death. Following Christ is costly. Asked John the Baptist. But the benefits are eternal. The inheritance waiting, Paul says, is beyond our, or Peter says, is beyond our capacity to understand. The weight of glory awaiting you, Christian, is beyond all comparison and worth any cost that God may ask of us. And the good news. The very best news is that the real cost, the horrible cost, has already been paid. Has already been paid in full by the very one that John the Baptist served and the very one that we serve, our Lord Jesus Christ. And to that, let us say, Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the for the example of John the Baptist as a godly man, as a stalwart man. We thank you for this record of of his death and for how he stood 
in the face of those who persecuted him and who hated him. Help us, Lord, as your children to stand in the face of those who may hate us. And help us to look always to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, knowing that he has done the work. He has caused us to be born again. And help us then to, in gratitude, to live the life that he calls us to live. Would you help us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.